Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the simulation hypothesis. In other words, we'll be asking the question of whether reality is analogous to a computer game. Maybe it's actually a very advanced computer game. My guest is Riswan Virk, who is a entrepreneur, an investor, an author, and a video game industry pioneer, as well as an independent film producer. Some of his films include adaptations of the works of Philip K. Dick and Ursula Le Guin. His books include Startup Myths and Models, The Simulation Hypothesis, which will be the subject of today's discussion, and Zen Entrepreneurship. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Riz. It's a pleasure to be with you on New Thinking Aloud. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. You're uh, really doing some pioneer work uh, by uh, promoting the simulation hypothesis. I think that uh, it it offers one of the most cogent potential explanations for paranormal phenomena, which is my specialty. But you came at it uh, because of your background in computer gaming. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, you know, I'm an entrepreneur in the video game industry, and uh, I uh, uh, started a program at MIT to teach about video games and, and the business of video games. And so I was coming at it from a, you know, very different mindset and kind of looking at how we build games and the evolution of these games. And, you know, a few years ago, I was actually playing a virtual reality ping pong game, and I had this headset on, and I was playing, you know, with a virtual controller that was supposed to be like a paddle and it felt so realistic that I forgot that I wasn't actually playing ping pong <laughs> and I tried to put the paddle down on the table and of course the controller fell to the floor because there was no table but to me it felt like it was and so the responsiveness has gotten so good and this is not even you know it wasn't even a super high resolution uh, virtual reality game there are others that are much more high res. And so, you know, I, I started to think about, you know, how this technology would evolve over the next few years and whether we could get to, to something that I called a simulation point, which is the point at which we can create a simulation that's indistinguishable from physical reality. Something very akin to, you know, what we saw in the movie The Matrix, uh, which was released almost 20 years ago. And there's a new version, uh, or Matrix 4, a sequel, coming out next year as well. So as I started to think about that, I realized that this model of a simulated computer-generated reality, you know, fit not just some of the anomalies uh, that crop up in quantum physics, but also, you know, I had spent time with people in spiritual traditions doing meditation, spiritual exploration, and people who were interested in UFOs and paranormal phenomena. And I found that this was an interesting way to bridge the gap between these, all these worlds, really. And so that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book was, uh, you know, one, to explore the technology, two, to explore how religion fits in, and three, to explore how 
paranormal phenomena fits in, along with the, the physics part of it as well. Many years ago, when I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was close friends with Ron Gordon, who had, had been president of Atari. I think they were the first uh, computer gaming company. They uh, promoted Pong and uh, games like that. There's been so much progress. And in the last 30, 40 years, it's easy to sort of project into the future and imagine what would it be like in another 100 years. That's right. I mean, if you think of the rate of advancement of video games, and you mentioned Pong, I'm, I'm here in Mountain View, California, which is just down the road from where Atari had its headquarters. Um, I think it was in Sunnyvale. Uh, and it's interesting that Pong was the first widely available video game. I mean, there was a game in the 1960s built at MIT uh, called Space War, but it was built on a, a mainframe computer, uh, a deck PDP-1. And so that was sort of the first game that had any kind of UI whatsoever. And it was played on college campuses that had the big computers, but it wasn't really widely available. And so, you know, video games since uh, uh, since Atari, uh, and I met Nolan Bushnell, who, who started Atari a few years back, and that was a lot of fun for me because that's how I got into video games, was I used to play Space Invaders and Pac-Man and Yars Revenge and Adventure, you know, on the uh, Atari VCS, the 2600, with the joystick. And so I've seen, you know, that evolution from these 8-bit games to these 16-bit games, uh, which happened with Nintendo and Sega back in the 80s. I was actually in Japan when I was in high school. And while I was there, I saw a video game system that didn't have a joystick, and, and it just had these little buttons. I thought, what is this thing? And it was called a Nintendo <laughs> Entertainment System. And it, a year later, it came to, to the U.S., and then my younger brother and, and his generation <laughs> you know that was how they got introduced you know to video games and so you know today we have 3d modeling and we have uh, uh mmorpgs or massively multiplayer online role-playing games games like world of warcraft where you might have millions of avatars or, or these days fortnite i don't know how many of your uh, viewers may have uh, played fortnite but their kids probably do <laughs> uh and there was a concert in fortnite that had like 12 million people attending or something like that. It was like the largest concert ever. Uh, now, they accomplished that by having different servers that were you know, sharing the information. So it wasn't exactly simultaneous, but it was simultaneous enough. And so as we've built the infrastructure within games, we realized that games are not just a metaphor, but they've provided the technology for many other areas that of, of things that we commonly use. I mean, our iPhone today is so powerful because when the iPhone was released in 2007 and, and the App Store was released in 2008, Apple didn't realize that the most popular app for that phone was going to be games. So video games and entertainment have pushed the forefront of technology. I mean, a lot of AI uh, applications today uh, used GPUs, which are graphics processing units. And those came about for better graphics. And who needs better graphics? Video games. And so for a long time, you know, video games has been at that kind of cutting or bleeding edge of technology, pushing it forward. And so now, you know, we're seeing the development of all different kinds of, of technology, including a lot of connectedness, a lot of AI, a lot of other things that are all related to developments that happen within gaming and entertainment. When I think of the 
simulation hypothesis, it strikes me that there might be two ways of looking at it. One is, is that some advanced civilization or uh, highly advanced entities have created a giant computer game and, and we are characters in that game un, unwittingly. A, another way to look at it, I think, is that uh, the universe itself by its very nature functions sort of like a quantum computer and that's just the the nature of reality. It may be um, self-created. It may be that the universe uh, just sort of organized itself this way. That's right. And so, you know, within those two very large ways of looking at it, even if we zoom in on the first way and say that we are characters or avatars within a video game uh, that's running on somebody else's computer – and uh, there was a gentleman named Nick Bostrom at Oxford who wrote a paper called Are You Living in a Computer Simulation back in 2003. And he estimated that you know, just using classical computers, you know, having a computer the size of the moon would be more than enough to have enough computations for all of human history in there uh, you know, within like 12 minutes or something like that, <laughs> within a very short period of time. Um, and so it, within that model, I, I also like to draw a distinction between what I call the NPC version and the RPG version. And so the NPC version, NPC stands for non-player characters or non-playable characters within video games. And so uh, whereas in, in an RPG uh, game, we each exist outside of the game and we have an avatar that we are controlling inside the game. Uh, and I draw this distinction because I think this is where the gap uh, or the bridge towards what religions and paranormal phenomena have been telling us comes in the RPG side because then consciousness exists and inhabits a body. Uh, in the NPC version, we're just AI bits running in a simulation, and the people who set up the simulation might be watching it, but they're not necessarily playing characters. Now, if you think about it, these two don't have to be completely mutually exclusive, right? In, in World of Warcraft, it's possible that I have a character and that character is interacting with an NPC. So, you know, it's very possible that we're in a combination of those two. And so I think, you know, when, when academics talk about the simulation hypothesis, they're often talking about the first version, the NPC version, where, you know, there's nothing outside. Uh, I mean, there is something outside, but there's nothing outside for us. You know, the best way to think about it is uh, uh, like an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation when, uh, you know, they had uh, the holodeck and uh, Data uh, was playing Sherlock Holmes. And there was a character inside the holodeck, uh, Professor Moriarty, who figured out that some of these guys came from out there and some of us are just within the simulation, right? And so he figured out there was an out there, something outside what looked what looked like the world to him. Um, but, you know, I think the more interesting version is, is the RPG version, where, uh, you know, if you think about what the Eastern religions in particular have been telling us, that we have a soul, we come in, we inhabit a body, we play a personality from birth, at birth that we download some information to the biological entity that is our body, and at death it gets uploaded, where does it get uploaded, that information? That's a good question, right? Some would say there's uh, the Akashic Records. In Silicon Valley, we like to say that's a, information stored in the cloud, right? <laughs> so it basically gets uploaded. And then within the Eastern religions, you come back and you play another role, a second character, right? But you have information from that first 
one. Uh, you know, and so you know, as I started to look more into Buddhism and Hinduism and how they worked, I realized well, you don't even have to make much of an analogy with the RPG version of video games. It's pretty much like what they've been telling us. You know, the the lila in the Hindu Vedas is the grand play. And of course, we have the famous quote from Shakespeare that you know, all life's the stage, and we're the men and women are merely players. Now, of course, they didn't have video games back then, either 500 years ago for Shakespeare, or a couple thousand years ago when the Vedas were written. Or they might have said, "We are an interactive video game, and each of us is just an avatar, you know, that we're playing." Um, you know, one interesting difference between Buddhism and Hinduism in this regard is in Hinduism, there's an indestructible soul that's going through the different lives. In Buddhism, it's not so clear. In fact, you know, some Buddhist scholars say, well, it's really like we're a bag of karma <laughs> that's coming back. And so the thing that gets uploaded and then downloaded is variable information based upon what you did in this life, and that determines how many more times you have to play. And that actually fits quite well with this idea of uh, you know, information theory and, and, and video games. And um, you know, my personal theory is that we are creating tasks for ourselves, quests, and achievements, which is how video games work, and that these quests and achievements, you know, are with other players, uh, and we might have those tasks on this in this lifetime, or they may be quests that we have later. So we have this piece of information that is our list of quests that goes up and down. That is basically the information that gets stored in the cloud server uh, that results in future lives. So that's you know one way to look at two versions of the first part of what you said. Um, you know, we can talk about the second part, which is, you know, is the universe a quantum computer already, and does it just work that way? Uh, and, and this is very interesting because, you know, there was a, a famous physicist named John Wheeler, and he said that, you know, physics went through three phases in his lifetime. It started off that everything was a particle, and so they thought there was a material world, and physics was the study of that material world. Then quantum mechanics came along, and they said, well, everything is a field. It's a field of probability. Right, uh, and then later in his career, and I think he passed away. Uh, I don't know, not that long ago in the 80s or 90s. Or he wrote his uh, autobiography in the 80s. He said he realized that at the bottom level, there was no such thing as matter. That really, it's just information. And so he came up with this famous phrase, which is, "It from bit." And he said, at the bottom level, a particle is just a bit of information, a yes or no, which are properties of that particle. That's how we define the particle. Uh, and it's true. If you look at you know, what physics is telling us, they can't find this thing called matter, right? We keep opening up the box like those Russian nested dolls. And all we find is more and more empty space. And then when we get to the bottom level, we, all we find is information about the particle itself. Now, there was a, another professor at Oxford, I think, um, uh, Deutsch, who, who modified the phrase and he said, well, it's it from qubit, right? So everything that is physical comes from a qubit because that gets to this idea of quantum indeterminacy, you know, or the observer effect, which we can get more into or not, depending on on, on where you think we should take the conversation. <laughs> it's very interesting to me to get down to information as sort of the uh, basement level of of reality. It still begs the question of of what is consciousness itself, because uh, I think many of the Eastern traditions in particular would say that consciousness can exist without any content, that consciousness is sort of the, the awareness that holds all that information. And, and I'm not quite sure how that would fit into the simulation hypothesis. 
Uh, well, this is why it's worth talking about different versions of the simulation hypothesis, uh, because it's a you know it's a big debate, and it's a big debate in in the world of physics. You know, Max Planck, who was one of the founders of of quantum physics, you know, thought that consciousness was primary, and matter was derivative. But the dominant view among a lot of scientists today is that matter is primary and that consciousness is derivative. So if you put together enough neurons, then you will get conscious entities, right? And so that's a big debate that's been going on, you know, for a long time. Uh, and, and it almost doesn't matter which side of the debate you fall on. There's a version of the simulation <laughs> hypothesis that fits pretty well in the sense that if we look at the RPG version, we are conscious entities outside the simulation. And so the way that we play video games and the way that you and I are talking right now, uh, we're not actually in the same room, right? So you are rendering an image on your computer, which is bits of information that is then being sent to me, and I am rendering that image on my computer. So each of us has a local computer that is rendering this conversation, right? And, uh, you know, some people would say that the universe works in the same way, that we have a local computer, which is our consciousness, uh, which is rendering the world around us. So you and I may not be seeing the exact same view of the universe. And there are some uh, experiments that are starting to happen to try to find out if the, the collapse of the probability wave might happen differently. There was a physicist in the 60s named Eugene Wigner, and he proposed an experiment you know, that said, well, what if I looked at the result of a uh, quantum indeterminacy or, or a uh, collapse of the probability wave, and I didn't tell you about it, and you looked at those same particles. And what if you saw something that was slightly different from what I saw? Does my observation change what you've seen when I haven't given you that observation, right? Uh, but stepping back, so, so it's very possible, and that experiment was just done recently in the UK, and they found that there was this possibility that you would get different results depending on who's observing and when. And just like, you know, I'm not really seeing you as you are, uh, you, my computer could render a butterfly next to you <laughs> if it wanted to, right? And so this gets down to questions of how we render the material world and whether it exists and from what point of view. Now, this is how we do it in video games. We can go to any XYZ coordinate in this 3D model, and then if I'm playing World of Warcraft, I render the room on my computer, which has me and, say, your elf avatar and somebody else's dragon avatar, right? And they render it on theirs. So it's very possible that the renderings look different, you know? Finding ways to model in a computer questions that have been uh, asked by philosophers, as you point out, uh, I think going back probably for centuries. So it's fascinating that uh, the computer technology is giving us a whole new way of doing philosophy. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, these are big philosophical questions. And if you look at, you know, the goal of science, it's to try to understand the world that we live in. And what's the goal of religion? It's to kind of understand the world we live in and why. And if you go back to the Greek philosophers, there wasn't such a distinction between science, philosophy, and religion, you know, like the Pythagorean schools, you know, they studied consciousness and they studied mathematics. These things weren't really split until, you know, Descartes, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And, and so we get the modern division between the materialistic world and the world of consciousness. But, you know, there's a saying in Silicon Valley, 
which is from a, a well-known entrepreneur and venture capitalist named Mark Andreessen, who said he was the founder of Netscape, you know, which started the whole internet boom back in the in the 90s. And he said that software is eating the world because every industry was starting to use software, whether it's insurance, whether it's automotive for simulation and modeling, etc. And you know, I and I have a variation of that, which is that information science is eating all the other sciences because in the end, when you think about biology, right, a lot of uh, biological research, you know, is coming down to genes and genetics. Well, what is genetics but a set of information? In fact, before they found physical genes, they had this idea of the gene, which was a set of bits of information. And then they they, they found DNA, and when they when they examine it, they realize it's really a very compact structure for storing all of this information, you know, about biological life. And so, biological life, as far as we can tell is based on some algorithms that read this information and then they render. Now, rendering is done differently for physical objects. Uh, you know, you can't just create a tree like that. You have to actually grow it using these algorithms. And what are these algorithms? We don't know yet, but we have a sense that there are because we're starting to do 3D printing. So I don't know if you've seen the output of a 3D printer, but, you know, you could, if you had a plastic as the material of the 3D printer, you could print this glass. Uh, and so at some point we'll get to, you know, going back to Star Trek The Next Generation, where Captain Picard used to say, T Earl Grey hot, and the uh, the cup would materialize and the the tea the would materialize. Uh, we're starting to have 3D printers that can print metal, that can actually print living tissue. And so, you know, what it's showing us is that what we think of as a physical object really consists of a set of information. And, and if you have that information model correctly, you can recreate, you know, that physical object. I know a lot of computer games, uh, I, at least I, I presume they build reincarnation right into the game. If your character dies, you can get reborn in, in these games. It, it seems to be a simple thing to program. But how, how would you explain that uh, in terms of uh, actual um, paranormal events that, uh, that we're clear about, like remote viewing. How could computer uh, simulation, how could that hypothesis account for remote viewing? Sure. Yeah. And, and remote viewing is, is interesting, you know, and I, as I mentioned, I'm here in Silicon Valley, just down the road from uh, where Stanford Research Institute <laughs> was, SRI, where they did a lot of those remote viewing experiments, you know, back in the 70s. And, you know, in the in a materialist view of the world, remote viewing can't exist, right? Because you can only see what your particular physical body is close to, and you can only examine the light. But it turns out within the world of 3D computer video games, it's not that hard, and we do this all the time. So if you think of something like World of Warcraft, your avatar could be somewhere completely different from where mine is, right? We could be on different sides of the continent. But my computer could render what's going on at your XYZ coordinates quite easily. And so we have what we call a virtual camera inside these games. And we were actually using this at a, a startup that I was involved with a few years ago where we took a 3D world like uh, uh, Counter-Strike Go or World of Warcraft, and we basically put the virtual camera in different places so that you could put on this virtual reality headset and you could see what it was like if the dragon was right there attacking you as opposed to watching it on your computer. You'd be right there. And we could do that for any character and any location. And so, you know, if we have a, a 3D world, uh, then it becomes uh, that is being rendered on a computer, then 
what's really happening is that there's information about what's in the world. It's being rendered on everybody's individual computer or everybody's individual phone, and that you can easily just switch the virtual camera. So normally we think of it as fixed, um, and this ties to you know other paranormal experiences like near near death experiences, right? So if you study NDEs, one of the areas that I find most intriguing is the life review. Uh, you know, and uh, when I was writing my book, I, I spent some time with Daniel Brinkley, who wrote uh, Saved by the Light back in the 90s, and he was struck by lightning, and, and you know, he was dead for I forget how many minutes now. Uh, but, you know, he described what he called a panoramic 360 life review. And so it's, uh, uh, you know, reliving every single moment in your life. But what was interesting about it was not just that everything was there, including moments that he may have forgotten about. But that he ha- he was able to view it from the other person's perspective, right? So he saw what it felt like, and you know, Daniel was kind of a rough guy. He got in a lot of fights. He beat people up. He was even in the military and actually shot people. He had to feel what it was like to be the person that was shot, um, and you know, that means if, if that's real, somewhere that has to be recorded in order to be played back like that, right? And well, it turns out, you know, a lot of uh, uh, what we do today in video games is is called streaming, right? On Twitch, and there's esports, uh, like the League of Legends finale had more people watching it than you know the Super Bowl had, and there was more money at stake. And so, recording a, a full 3D gameplay session is not that hard. You just record it on your computer, and then you can play back different pieces from different X, Y, Z coordinates. Now, obviously, it's much more sophisticated. The near-death experience you know, is more sophisticated because you have to feel what they're feeling. And our video games right now are mostly visual. And even with virtual reality glasses, we don't necessarily feel things, but even that's changing. Uh, there's a company called Tesla Suit that has this full-body haptic suit where you can actually feel the G-forces while you're driving on your body. And they did a they did a little demonstration where they had a big rugby player in the UK. I forget who it was, but it was some famous rugby player tackle someone, and they had everything recorded on where he made contact. You could put on the suit and the glasses, and it would feel like you were actually tackled by this big rugby player, which is not something that I necessarily want to experience. But you know, our technology is getting better and better at that. Eventually, you could see if we could find ways to record emotions. Then we might get to the technology that's uh, behind something like the life review uh, in a near-death experience. Another interesting experience uh, that's been widely reported in almost every uh, culture and mystical tradition is, is the idea of cosmic consciousness, that uh, people feel that they can be aware of everything all at once, that uh, their their mind extends out to infinity and they would say, we are all one, I am one with everything. Uh, is that something that can be simulated? You know, that's a good question, and that's an experience, you're right, that I think uh, they have pretty much in, in every culture, and whether it's through meditation or, you know, through drugs or just, you know, spontaneously, it's an experience that people have, uh, this experience of being part of something greater and that everything is is literally connected. And if you think of how that would work, again, in a materialistic universe that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because <laughs> everything is separate from everything else. Um, but if you think of a connected universe, right? I, I like to say that a lot of scientists think that 
the universe stop evolving at a 1980s PC. <laughs> and in the 1980s, PCs weren't connected to each other, right? Uh, Steve Jobs famously said, why do you need a connection to the, to the internet, to your office, right? <laughs> but today, we know that computers are more powerful when they're connected to each other, even if you can't see the connection, it's there behind the scenes. And, you know, if nature is the ultimate computer, it understands that and, and therefore everything is connected. Now, if it's a simulation, that makes even more sense, right? And so science is about finding models that explain the world better than the models that we have had to date. I mean, that's what what led uh, physics to looking at rel relativity to replace Newton's classical mechanics, etc. And so if we are literally pixels that are being rendered, then everything is in fact the same, right? Uh, the matter that we're talking about is all being rendered on the same types of processors uh, and that it is all literally part of one simulation. Uh, now, you know, what does that mean? Are there multiple simulations out there? <laughs> That's an interesting question. You know, I, I interviewed uh, the wife of uh, science fiction author Philip K. Dick, uh, Tessa, as part of my research for the book. And she said that, you know, he thought literally that we were in a computer programmed reality and that there are different versions and they would run it. And if if they found undesirable things, they would rewind that and then rerun the simulation kind of like a fork in the road, right? And and so she thought, she said that he thought that like his, some of his uh, novels like Man in the High Castle which is about um, Germany and Japan winning World War II and dividing America between them, that that came from an actual memory of another parallel reality that branched off. And he said that the simulators told him that they didn't like that reality and they rewound it and forwarded it again. So, you know, you get into very big questions about what is the nature of the universe. But yeah, you know, these types of mystical experiences make more sense. I mean, I like to say that every religion is about what happens to us after we die or before we're born. And so the way that religions form is that someone peeks outside the simulation. Like, you know, they get a sense of what it's like, kind of like Neo in the Matrix when he wakes up. Uh, and then they come back and they try to describe it to us. Uh, and it's, a, it, 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 it's very difficult to do because base reality is very different from this reality. And so you know, you, you're kind of in that situation with the elephant and the three blind men, right? They're each just feeling a different part of the elephant and they think they know exactly what the elephant is like. Uh, and, and to me, that tends to be what happens with mystical experiences when we try to describe them you know, within this, this physical, quote-unquote, reality. You describe in, in your book something, I believe you refer to it as the great simulation or the great simulator that uh, it's as if it's, there might be a simulation that encompasses every other simulation. There's this idea of multiple simulations, right? I mean, as I said, the way that I started to write this book was thinking about how we could create a simulated world that was indistinguishable from physical reality, which we might do with a virtual reality headset. And so if we're in a simulation and we create a simulation, you now have this nested set of simulations. And so, you know, I, I use the term the great simulation in a couple of different ways. One, one way is just to describe our world as just a single multiplayer simulation with billions, if not trillions, of individual characters, right, when you count, you know, all conscious beings. Uh, and if you count other planets, potentially, right, you're talking about a very large set. Uh, but I also talk about it as being the next level up, right? And, and 
some of the mystics have told us that there are multiple levels that you wake up to. And in some of the traditions, there's this idea of the physical body, the astral body, the causal body, and that you shed one body uh, and you're in the, 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 the next le- level up. Well, what is that? Well, the astral plane, the way it's been described, is much more like a simulation even than what we think of as the physical world, where simply thinking about things creates them for you, (laughs) and it's a different level, but then people have described levels above that. So, in fact, we could be living in in a stacked set of of, of simulations. Yeah, Yeah, you referred earlier to the Star Trek episode where Professor Moriarty wants to escape from the holodeck, and as as I recall in that episode, uh, they solved the the problem of Moriarty uh, trying to take over the the Starship Enterprise by creating another simulation. So he thought he had escaped, but he was really still in a, a different simulation in the holodeck. That's right. Yes. Uh, so they had a simulation of the Enterprise, and so it kind of made him happy <laughs> to think that he had taken over. Uh, and and I think that's you know. Uh, uh, a philosophical issue we res- we wrestle with when we talk about you know the simulation hypothesis and this idea of stacking simulations there was a there was a movie that came out a few years ago uh, based on a book called Ready Player 1 and Steven Spielberg made the film and they did the same thing where they 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 had a guy think that he had taken off his glasses and he was outside the virtual reality but in fact he was in a a, a you know 100% reproduction of the room that he had been in when he had put on the glasses uh, and so yeah so i think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of ways to to think about that and i think that that might account for a lot of what we think of as mystical experiences uh, where we see certain things right and, and certainly in near death experiences you know, some people report seeing a garden, some people report seeing cities, some people, you know, report seeing Jesus, some people report seeing just straight beings of light, that these are presented to our consciousness. So they are rendered on our consciousness. Uh, and I think all kinds of, you know, paranormal phenomena can be can be explained, you know, with, within this framework, better than within a material framework. Well, it's a very elegant hypothesis, and I, I know uh, we haven't even gotten into the fascinating uh, parallels between the simulation hypothesis and quantum physics, but let me ask you this. As a scientist, one would want to test the hypothesis, and uh, are there any possible tests? So, if if we wanted to confirm the hypothesis or refute it, what what could we do? Sure. So, you know, this is uh, one of the areas of, about simulation theory that's discussed a lot, and sometimes it's used to dismiss simulation theory because there's no definitive way to prove that we aren't in a simulation, right? But, you know, my answer to that is just because you can't prove something is not true doesn't mean that you can't find evidence that it is true. So, you know, perfect example is a few hundred years ago, most scientists did not believe stories that there were rocks falling from the sky, right? Uh, and they just said, that's ridiculous. The, the reason we know it's ridiculous is because there are no rocks in the sky. <laughs> so how could they possibly be falling? So people must be imagining these things, right? And the problem wasn't the reality of the rocks. The problem was the cosmological model that we had created was one that didn't allow for that possibility. And and I think that's where we are with science today is that the cosmological model of a material universe doesn't necessarily uh, lend itself to understanding. But in that case, they did find 
evidence of rocks and there was a, a huge uh, meteor shower outside of Paris uh, which was seen by you know thousands of people and so then finally they had to come up with a new model and so there are there are scientists who speculate that there are things that we're finding you know for example um, there have been experiments by physicists that have found a geometric structure to the physical universe and and this they're called lattices and they're kind of like pixels right and and so you know they find that 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 explains the world much better than just a purely continuous model where you have an infinite um, you know a number of times you can cut within it uh, there's also a group of scientists led by uh, physicist Tom Campbell uh, who put together a paper on uh, experiments that might actually prove that the world is being rendered for us as we observe it uh, where you need a conscious observer that is not enough just to have a device recording the outcome of a particular quantum experiment and so they raised some money on Kickstarter a couple years ago and um, actually those experiments are underway in, in Southern California and I've actually visited there um, and and so so there are people who are trying uh, to find ways to, to, to find evidence uh, now it's not going to be definitive proof that we're in a simulation but it, there'll be evidence that'll suggest just like the rocks that fell from the sky suggest that there must be something up there <laughs> other than just the sky, right? You referred earlier to uh, instances where uh, maybe the past gets changed, the program gets rewound, and the past gets changed and moved forward again. And sometimes, uh, for example, in the Philip Dick novels, uh, I think like the Adjustment Bureau, uh, people can recognize that that's happened. But there is a whole uh, group of people, a social movement that's pretty active on the internet these days around a, a concept they call the Mandela. Mandela effect, where uh, people seem to have recollections of uh, historical events that didn't uh, actually occur, at least according to our present records. Right, and and that's uh, you know fascinated me for a while, and you know as I got more into the simulation hypothesis, I started to realize there was some real overlap between these theories, because as we say. These events, such as the death of Nelson Mandela in prison in the eighties, didn't happen in our timeline, right? And so the question is, what is it that they are remembering? Are they remembering a different timeline? Now, what happens in the Adjustment Bureau, which was based on you know Philip K. Dick's short story, uh, was that this guy goes to his office and he's not supposed to be, he was supposed to already be there, and he sees that everyone has been frozen and that there's this team of people that's changing things, including changing things in everybody's memories of the people that were there, so that the new office and the, the new memories are what everyone remembers. But he wasn't there when he was supposed to be to have his memory changed. And so he remembers the old set of memories. And and so, you know, there's a theory that says that the Mandela effect, you know, is really just remembering another timeline, another run of the simulation. And if you think about it, that's why we run simulations. We run simulations to see what would happen to the weather under X or to the population under Y, right? So we run different simulations and we try to find the optimal scenario, you know, for those simulations. And so, uh, you know, there was a movie that came out, science fiction movie called The Mandela Effect. Uh, and, you know, he, he was uh, looking for a timeline where his daughter was still around and 
yeah, he was a computer scientist, and turns out there was a quantum computer, uh, you know, in a university, and he uses it to crash the simulation <laughs> and reset the simulation. So he's back on the timeline that he wanted to be. And so, you know, with the Mandela effect, you know, some of those are, you know, seem to be relatively minor things like. Uh, misspelling of of, uh, of a word here or there. Some are slightly bigger, but it's when you start talking about these different events and and how they're completely different timelines, uh, that's where it starts to get you know quite interesting. And and I think the sim the simulation is a, a is a good explanation. In fact, I'm writing a bit, uh, you know, about uh, how these two overlap and this idea of multiple timelines and parallel universes. And if, you know, I'm a big fan of science fiction, as you know, and if you look back at, you know, science fiction in the 20th century, it started to be about being from other planets, right? We were just determining and, and realizing that there are all these other solar systems out there, there may be other planets, and so superheroes like Superman were from other planets. Now, if you look at the superheroes today, like my nephews, they always watch The Flash right, uh, on the CW. And you'll see that they have the multiverse concept. And they'll have The Flash from our Earth, and then they'll have Earth 2, and they'll have The Flash from Earth 34. Right? And so there's an almost infinite number of Earths, and you'll see that this idea of parallel universes has now – you know, it's not enough that our superheroes are from other planets. They have to actually be from other universes on other timelines, and, and I think you know the fact that that's pervading into popular culture now makes us much more open to these these types of concepts. And 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 I, in fact, I do think that maybe what's happening with the Mandela effect is that we are we have some memory of the uh, our character in the other timeline. Riz, let me ask you this question: You've been exploring this issue for a long time from many different perspectives. H how do you personally feel about it? What What is your own personal belief uh, about yourself in this regard? Do you Do you see yourself as a uh, avatar? Uh, yeah, you know, I tend to to think that it's more true than not. And so, you know, I was asked last year, I think by Vox, <laughs> you know, to put a percentage on, on, on the idea that, uh, you know, we were in a simulation. And I said, well, that's hard to do, but I would say it's greater than 50%, in my, in my personal opinion. Uh, and that ended up making a lot of news uh, out there. But yeah, so, you know, I tend to be of the opinion that we, our consciousness exists beyond this physical body, and this physical body is a part that we're playing, and that we have access to other information. So there's a part of us outside of the simulation, and that is communicating with us. And we can send messages back and forth, uh, whether it's through our dreams or through mystical experiences. So you know, I, I I do believe that that model of the simulation is much more likely than I think the standard scientific model, where you know we come into existence when we're born and we're gone when we die, and that's it. Yeah. You know, we did a, a previous program on virtual reality with uh, the philosopher Jason Giorgiani, and his, his philosophy is that uh, all technology is about control, that we, we want to have greater and greater control over our environment. And I suppose the ultimate control is, is to be able to control the entire simulation. Uh, do you think we have any prospect of getting to that level? Well, I, I think we have a prospect of being able to create our own simulations, and within those, we will have complete control. Uh, but you know, uh, it's interesting you you, you bring up uh, with the philosopher because you know these are big philosophical issues, and one of the questions that comes up is about free will versus uh, 
you know, just having everything predetermined. Uh, and that also comes up within uh, simulation theory, and it gets back to uh, this basic split of the NPC version versus the RPG version. Now, complexity theory is a branch of mathematics and science that's all about what happens uh, and what kind of unintended consequences you have when you change small parameters here and there. Uh, you know, and with, with the example being a butterfly flaps its wings in China and it affects the stock market in London, right? Uh, but even when you, when you have, uh, you're trying to model uh, what's going to happen when a planet goes around a star for the 15 millionth time or the billionth time, you know, you can't say for sure what's going to happen unless you actually simulate it. Uh, and, and that's where, you know, complexity theory really is all about. But even in those cases, there are deterministic rules, right? Uh, so you have deterministic rules and you still don't know exactly what's going to happen. So there's a concept called co uh, computational irreducibility um, that was put out by uh, the gentleman who uh, made the Mathematica software. Um, and so even if there was no free will. You still may not know exactly what's going to happen, even with predetermined rules, until you run the entire simulation. Now let's add in the concept of free will. Uh, and that's why I like to say it's more of a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. My avatar in World of Warcraft might have limited options, but I can still make the choice of whether he attacks or kills this this orc or this other character or not, or he decides not to fight them, and does. so there's still choices being made. I mean, they may be sort of pre-planned within some some set of probabilities, but the probabilities is almost too vast, uh, you know, to to realize. And so you have to run the simulation, and so now add a billion people, all making individual choices, you know, within the simulation, and so that gets to to what I think is the closer to uh, you know how the simulation works uh, as opposed to it just being all controlled you know by one central computer or one central consciousness but those are interesting and fun questions I think one way of uh, looking at it uh, I don't know if it's in your book I heard this from Giorgiani uh, is that uh, it, the comparison is with Isaac Asimov's uh, foundation. Uh, series and the idea of a, a science of history and that if if our entire universe is a simulation, it may be that somebody is uh, using it to develop a, a larger science of, of history itself. Uh, right. So this gets to the bigger question of what is the purpose of the simulation, right? And so, you know, when we simulate things, we will run the same simulation 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, a million times, and see what the most likely outcomes are. And there's a whole science that graphs the possible outcomes. And within complexity theory, you know, you find that they're not kind of unlimited. There's like probably a stable outcome is when it, no matter how many times you run it, you get, say, one of these 50,000 points, right? Whereas an unstable outcome is there's millions and millions of points of results and you don't know what's going to happen. And so you keep running the simulations again and again to see what those are. And, and we do this with Monte Carlo simulations for things like, you know, traffic in the bank, right? <laughs> Foot traffic, you know, how do we uh, make it so that people don't have to wait in queues for too long? Should we have multiple bank tellers or not? And so we run simulations to do that. And so it could be that People are watching us play an advanced version of civilization to see whether we blow ourselves up, <laughs> whether we have climate change, uh, and then to make tweak those parameters, 
right? Uh, and then rerun it again from there. And, and again, that ties back to the idea of the Mandela effect. So, you know, I think there, there could certainly be something to that. Uh, you know, in, in Foundation, which is incidentally is being made into, uh, I think, a, I don't know if it's a movie or a TV series, uh, but next year. Uh, but, you know, the idea was that you could uh, predict what people were going to do statistically. Uh, you may not be able to predict what any one person is going to do, but you could predict what the entire population was going to do by using statistical prediction techniques, right? And that's what we're trying to do with AI today. We're trying to use lots and lots of data to try to predict what will happen, you know, within different markets, et cetera. We're not there with our technology yet, but it's possible that whoever is running the simulation is using this as training data for their AI to figure out what's going to happen, you know, within different types of simulations. Well, one of the points that you make, you talk about levels of uh, computer sophistication and in terms of consciousness, level 9, level 10 is particularly interesting to me that you describe that once we have the ability, which people predict could be within 30 years, to download consciousness, human consciousness into a machine, we could be creating uh simulators uh, comparable to the one that we might already be in. That's right. So in the book, I talk about the, the stages on the road to the simulation point, and I lay out 10 different stages of technology. Uh, and, you know, one of those is photorealistic virtual reality. And, and we have virtual reality. We don't quite have photorealistic one. One of those is light field displays, which is the idea that if you can figure out for any object, say this uh, can of soda here, if you can figure out how the light bounces from this object to my eyes, and you can actually create a field or a hologram and reflect light in the same way, what's the difference between having the object there <laughs> or not having the object there? Uh, and another interesting one is when we get into brain-computer interfaces, it's the idea of false memories. Right, and so this was explored again by Philip K. Dick in, in many of his science fiction stories, and in the movie Blade Runner, you know, there's a famous scene where um, uh, Sean Young's character Rachel remembers what it was like to be a little girl and seeing a spider building her web outside, and turns out it's an implanted memory. Right, uh, and we're not quite there yet with our technology, but it's possible we could get there. Uh, there have been experiments done where they were able to use electrical signals to convince a rat that he had learned where not to go in the maze. Uh, and so, you know, ethical uh, assumptions aside, <laughs> the, you know, those types of electrical signals could be used potentially, you know, within humans um, to give us false memories. And uh, Stephen Hawking, in one of his last lectures at Harvard University, said that if we can't be sure about the past, uh, then we really don't know anything about our universe, right? If determinism breaks down, and it does, he was saying, because information is lost within black holes, now we're in a whole different area of physics. Uh, but if you can't be sure about the past, you know, there's a whole field uh, uh, called last Thursdayism, right? Uh, where, you know, how do you know that the universe wasn't created last Thursday? <laughs> uh, and if we're in a simulation, it's very possible that everything that we think of as memories is coming from multiple runs of the simulation. So uh, it's the initial conditions that, that could be put there. And then finally, stage nine, I think, we, is what you talked about, which is the downloading of consciousness. So you know, this is a popular area in Silicon Valley, and this is the idea of digital immortality. Can I download my consciousness onto Silicon? And right now, it's a, if, if you think of us as a biological machine, right, um, 
and our information is downloaded onto there, there's no reason we couldn't download that information to another machine. Uh, so you could have AI or robots that also have consciousness uh, or even a soul because if consciousness gets downloaded to anything that is suitable <laughs> to host it inside the machine, uh, inside the simulation, then we could create other machines that way. Uh, and so this gets to a whole nother set of philosophical issues about you know, immortality, AI, the rights of AI, and they've been explored in science fiction, but we may find ourselves trying to explore them you know, in real life here <laughs> real soon within. Uh, and, and so estimates for when we get to the simulation point you know, range from a couple decades to a couple hundred years, right? No one honestly thinks it's going to take longer than a couple hundred years. Well, in that case, you know, if you think of the, the time frame of the universe, it's very likely <laughs> that we will get there uh, within some period of time. I mean, 10,000 10, years will definitely be there, right? Uh, what's a couple hundred years in the overall scheme of the universe? Not much. Well, I think before we uh, leave the topic, it's very useful to discuss the relationship between the simulation hypothesis and uh, the collapse of the wave function in quantum physics. So one of the big mysteries in, in uh, quantum physics is quantum indeterminacy. And it's this idea that it's only when we observe something that a particular reality comes into being out of the set of probabilities. And probably the easiest way to understand that is with Schrodinger's cat, right? Uh, and the idea was proposed by uh, Edwin Schrodinger that there was a cat with some radioactive material in a box. And within an hour, given the decay of the radioactive material, there's a 50% chance the cat is alive and 50% chance that the cat is dead. And so we would think that it's one or the other. can't be both, right? We just don't know because we haven't opened up the box to look. What quantum physics is telling us is that's not the case. Both of those probabilities exist, and it's not until we observe it. Now, there's some debate over what constitutes an observer, but pretty much most physicists agree that until it's observed, you know, one of those possibilities comes into play. Uh, and so this was explained as the collapse of the probability wave, uh, but no one really understood why that happens. And so when you put on your hat of a video game designer, um, the reason we're able to design 3D video games today is we do optimization. And so we actually render only those things that your avatar can see inside the 3D environment. I mean, if you tried to go back on a Commodore 64 you know, computer from the 80s and you tried to render Fortnite, it won't work because there's just not enough computing power. But the reason we're able to do it today is not just the increase in computing power, it's the optimization techniques. And so there are many people who think that the observer effect or quantum indeterminacy is actually an optimization technique so that not everything has to be rendered in the universe, only those things which are being observed by some conscious observer in the universe. And so you know, the rule of thumb in video games is render only that which you can see. Turns out the golden rule of thumb in the universe is only that which gets seen is rendered. Otherwise, it's a set of probabilities. Now, what does that mean, a set of probabilities? <laughs> does it mean those they exist in physical form? That's a big debate. Uh, and that's where parallel universes also come into play. Another theory is that those you split off into multiple parallel universes. But all of those seem to be much better explained 
if we are some part of a computer program that is rendering worlds or is copying information and splitting and branching things, then a materialistic universe. And so, you know, the materialistic universe just doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense if you really think about it, although it's become popular in physics to try to find ways to justify the materialist point of view uh, by, you know, cutting out consciousness as much as possible. <laughs> Well, I think that this parallel between quantum physics and uh, computer game simulations is actually one of the strongest arguments for the uh, simulation hypothesis. Uh, yeah, I think so too, because as I said earlier, it, when you take something that seems completely unexplainable, whether it's rocks falling from the sky or it's you know how time changes at the speed of light – and you come up with a new model, a way of thinking about it where it suddenly makes sense, right? Then it's important for us to explore that avenue. Uh, and that, that's why I think simulation hypothesis is so important in understanding our world. Uh, and, you know, the Eastern religions have been telling us this for a long time, that we live in a world of Maya or illusion. That, and it turns out it's not just the Eastern religions. In the Western religions, too, they're telling us that the physical world we see is a training ground, and it's not the real world, and we'll spend eternity somewhere else outside of this physical world, and that there are beings outside of the physical world called angels in, 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 in the more Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions that are watching us and that are recording everything we do. And so the simulation hypothesis, I think, not only provides a better explanation for these physics uh, anomalies, they also find a way to bridge religion and science, which is what's interesting to me and why I find it, you know, just a fascinating topic that we could talk about for hours. Well, Riz, this has been a delightful conversation, very enlightening. And uh, I think the hypothesis is very powerful and it goes in many different directions. Uh, so thank you so much for being with me. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.